And, and something put a check in my spirit and said, uh, you need to go back, as we always do on occasion, to the basic, uh, to the core gospel, to behold the beauty of God's love and God's grace, and, uh, and, and review the foundation. And so uh, that's what I want to do here this morning. In fact, I'm going to entitle this, uh, for reasons that will be clear shortly, uh, You Are the Prostitute. That's the, the foundation. <laughs> I, I, I want to re- read a story that, that is, and, and just tell a story that is one of my favorite stories in the Bible. And the point of it is that you are the prostitute. It comes out of Luke chapter 7. But before we even read this passage, it's a rather long uh, passage of Scripture, I want to pray, and I'd like to get some people on the auditorium who will be my intercessors. Will you raise your hand if you'll just keep me covered in prayer? Thank you. Appreciate that. Let's pray. Our Father, we acknowledge, as always, that apart from your Spirit, nothing of kingdom value happens. So, Holy Spirit, flood this message. Invade this message. And I pray, God, that you would just use it to help us behold more clearly than we've ever beheld before how desperately we need you, how beautiful your grace is to us, how lovely it is for us to pour ourselves out to you in response to you pouring yourself out to us. God, open our eyes once again to see your beauty and your grace. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, amen. Luke chapter 7. Uh, the the uh, story is prefaced in Luke by an episode where Jesus is engaging in some of his reli- with some of his religious critics, and so the passage starts in verse thirty three. John the Baptist has come, Jesus says to his religious critics, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. John the Baptist has come, and he eats no bread and drinks no wine, and you say he has a demon. He's too strict. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. In other words, what Jesus is saying to his religious critics is, we can't win with you guys. We're either too strict or we're too loose. In the case of Jesus, they say he's too loose. But Jesus says, wisdom is vindicated by all of her children. And we could have a whole sermon on that. I'll just right here say that what he's getting at is this. The wisdom of the Messiah being friends with tax collectors, prostitutes, drunkards, other kinds of sinners, the wisdom of that will be vindicated by her children. In other words, you'll know that this is kingdom thing by, by its fruits. You'll see people changed radically in ways that your religious system could never change them. Of course, the Pharisees won't, won't acknowledge that because they're not looking for that sort of fruit. But for all who have eyes to see and ears to hear, wisdom, the true wisdom of God, is vindicated by her children because the love of Christ has a way of changing lives that religious systems just cannot. Now comes the story which really provides an illustration of this, and this is why Luke puts it in this location. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him. And so Jesus went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. Jesus loved the Pharisees as much as the gluttons and the drunkards. And a woman in the city who was a sinner. Now just a word about that. 
uh, they knew that everybody was a sinner, but this phrase was an idiomatic way of referring to, when it, when it applied to women, an idiomatic way of saying a woman of the night, a prostitute. This one was a prostitute. At least that was his, it's a very customary uh, application of that term. A woman in the city who was a sinner, a prostitute, having learned that Jesus was eating in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster jar of ointment. That was among the most expensive sorts of perfume uh, you could have in the ancient world. It would cost the average person about a year's salary to buy that. She stood behind Jesus at his feet, weeping, and began to bathe his feet with her tears and to dry them with her hair. And then she continued kissing his feet and anointing them with the ointment. Now the picture you need to get here is not some lady under the table washing Jesus' feet. The way they ate in the ancient world is the table was on the ground for all intents and purposes, just a little bit above the ground. And the people would lean, would, would lay next to the table with their feet facing outward. And with one hand they'd lean, with the other hand they'd eat. So th- th- uh, this woman walks into the house and these men, these religious authorities are gathered around this table. And she comes and stands at the feet of Jesus. And then she begins to wash Jesus' feet. And then she begins to kiss Jesus' feet and anoint him with her expensive perfume. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what kind of woman this is who is touching him. It was considered inappropriate for a woman to touch any man other than her husband. And uh, here was a prostitute touching uh, a purported rabbi. He would know that she is a sinner. Jesus spoke up and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. Teacher, he replied. Now, he was just gossiping about Jesus in his brain. Uh, this man's not a prophet. And all of a sudden, he's like, teacher? <laughs> yes, you referring to me? He replied, speak. So Jesus says, a certain creditor had two debtors, and one owed 500 denarii and the other only 50. And when they could not pay, he canceled the debts of both of them. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the greater debt. And Jesus said to him, you have judged rightly. You were judging wrongly a moment ago, but now you're judging rightly. And then turning, I love this scene, turning toward the woman. He's looking at this woman who's at his feet, sobbing, washing his feet, kissing his feet, anointing his feet. He looks at her and he says to Simon, he's talking to Simon while he's looking at her. Do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, which was customary, but she has bathed my feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. And you gave me no kiss of greeting, which was customary, but from the time I came in, she, was not, she has not stopped kissing my feet. And you did not anoint my head with oil, which is something that friends did with one another, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. It leads me to believe that Simon didn't uh, invite Jesus over to his house for friendly purposes. I suspect, it, suspect that there were ulterior motives here. He didn't give him the normal courtesy that you give friends when they, when they come into the house. Therefore, Jesus says, I tell you, this woman's sins, which are many, they've all been forgiven. Hence, she has shown such great love. But the one to whom little is forgiven loves little. The more you know you've been forgiven, the more grateful you are and the more you love. Then he said to her, your sins are indeed forgiven. But those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this that even forgives sins? A prostitute, no less. 
But Jesus ignored them and said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. I want us this morning to get into the the world of this uh, prostitute. Because the point of the story is for us, the reader, to associate to, to identify with the prostitute. So I I, I just want to get into her story a little bit. Uh, We're not told her name. We don't know what her name is, but it helps me personalize the story if I give her a name. There's a long church tradition that this was Mary Magdalene, but there's no proof of that. There's another church tradition that identifies her with the woman that was caught in the act of adultery, and that's possible, but there's no proof of that. But I want to call her Mary just because that was the most common name for a, for a, a woman, uh, a Jewish woman in the first century. So let's call her Mary. And the question I want to ask is... What led Mary to get into this lifestyle, this occupation? What led her to become a prostitute? Because I don't think that growing up, this was the dream of her life. I don't think any young lady uh, is born and is raised hoping to grow up to be a prostitute. Certainly not in first century Jewish culture. This was the most despised uh, occupation, if you can even call it that, the most despised occupation you could enter. In fact, it was technically illegal. You could be stoned for it, though that rarely happened, partly because the people who had the authority to stone you were some of your clients. But nonetheless, it was a, uh, a, a, a disdained occupation. Why did Mary get into this? And we don't know. But we can imagine. Let's get into the story a little bit. We can imagine the kinds of things that might have led a young Jewish girl to grow up to become a prostitute. If Mary was at all uh, typical of prostitutes in the first century, her story might have looked something like this. Perhaps she fell in love with a man when she was a young teenager and uh, they made some bad choices, began to have sex before marriage, and she got pregnant. And in those days, you either married the woman or you denied that that was your child and I can easily imagine the man, especially if he's in training to become a Pharisee, uh, not wanting to say, this is my child, not wanting to, to, to marry the woman. So he either disappears or he simply denies it. No one believes women in that culture anyways. Women have always paid a much greater price for indiscretions than men have. And, uh, and so Mary is left a, a single mother. And in that culture, to say that's a stigma is, 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 an, is a fantastic understatement. If it was known that a woman had sex before marriage, most men, the decent quote-unquote men, the religious men, wouldn't have anything to do with her. She was considered used, borrowed. Uh, uh, you know, you're, you're marrying down if you marry her. And for a woman to have a child out of wedlock, well, now it's public, and, and uh, uh, you would be stepping down a number of social strata if you were to marry her, something a, a decent Jewish man wouldn't do. Basically, to be a single mother, having a child out of wedlock in the first century, uh, you basically sealed your fate in terms of marriage opportunities. You're probably going to be single the rest of your life. And what you need to know is that in first century Judaism, and in fact in most of the ancient world, the options are very limited for single women, certainly single women who have children. Uh, if you don't have a trade that you have learned, your parents gave you a trade, and so there's a job you can use to support yourself, or if you don't have a, a, an inheritance to live off of, your options are very limited. One of the few things you can do, because there's always a demand for it, is to become a prostitute. And we don't know the exact reasons why Mary got into this field, but she did. At some point, she decides she has to survive and support her child. She becomes a prostitute. And she is used by men at night and judged by them during the day. 
And she lives in this life that uh, she knows and experiences uh, that people disdain her for, for, for having and for doing. When she walks down the street, people don't make eye contact, with, uh, eye contact with her. This is her life. At some point, we don't know how long she was a prostitute, but at some point she buys this uh, alabaster jar of ointment. Now, usually it was only very, very wealthy women who wore this sort of perfume because it was so expensive. The one exception to that is that High-class prostitutes also wore this. In the ancient world, smelling good was considered a real luxury. And uh, if a woman smelled very, very good, uh, it was you know, a, a seen as an attractive, very attractive thing. And so by having this ointment, you could attract uh, a higher-class clientele, and you could charge more money. You weren't just going to be a run-of-the-mill prostitute. You're going to be a high-society prostitute, though they didn't have high-society prostitutes in those days. But at least you, you, you could get more money. So this, uh, so far as we can know, this would have been an occupational investment. Now, she would have had to save up for it for quite some time, which leads me to believe she was in prostitution for quite some time. It would cost her about a year's salary to, to buy this, and in the meantime, she had to support herself and her child. And so she was in this field for some time, living in that shame for some time, living in this disgrace for some time. I imagine at first it was very hard for her to do this, but like everything else, the more you do it, the better you get at it. And in, and in time, she became hardened to it. We don't know how, we don't know when, we don't know the circumstances, but at some point, Mary met Jesus. Perhaps the church tradition's right. Maybe this was the woman in John 8 who was uh, caught in the act of adultery. The act of adultery doesn't mean that both parties were married. It just means that one of the parties was married. And perhaps this was the woman. We don't know. Perhaps Jesus was the one who, who uh, silenced her critics. But whatever, whatever the circumstances were, you, we can know that that encounter, as it so often happened in encounters with Jesus, that encounter completely changed her life. You don't barge into a Pharisee's party as a prostitute unless your life has been absolutely turned upside down. And you see this throughout the Gospels. It's, it's the beauty of Jesus. There's something about this man that uh, unless you were a religious authority that had reasons to block it out, you saw something different, felt something different, experienced something different in the presence of Jesus Christ. It's noted throughout the Gospels. It's one of the reasons why people like Mary followed Jesus around. Something about the look of his eyes. I can imagine Mary uh, experiencing this when she looks into the eyes of Jesus. Here's a man, and he doesn't look, he doesn't look at me the way most men look at me. He, he's not looking at my body. He's not looking at me for ulterior reasons. He's not looking at me for, 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 for what he can get out of me. He's looking at me. He's looking into my soul. He understands me. Something about the look in his eyes. He's killing me softly with his eyes. He pierces my soul with his eyes. And, and uh, for the first time, maybe in a long, long time, this hardened prostitute woman feels an innocence again that she hasn't felt since she was a little girl dreaming about a happy ever after. For the first time, maybe in a long, long time, she feels like a human being again. 
being around Jesus, the look of his eyes, maybe the, 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 the words that he said to her, maybe the, the touch, I, I don't know. But, but, but something profound happened there where she uh, smells life. She remembers what it is to be a, a worthwhile human being. She feels a worth when he looks at her that she never otherwise feels. She feels loved for the first time in a long time. She doesn't feel judged. And her life is turned upside down by it. It's clear that she can't get Jesus out of her mind because as soon as she hears a rumor that he's coming to town, boom, she's got to be there. She's got to be there. I don't know what implications that encounter with Jesus had for her and her lifestyle, but I do know that this woman was profoundly changed and impacted by this encounter with Jesus. She re- recovered an innocence she hadn't had in his presence with Jesus. And she's in love with Jesus in in the purest sense of the term. She's in love with this man who woke her up from a hardened state. She's alive again. She's awake. And she's got to see him again. She hears that he's coming to town. Unfortunately, she's coming to the house of Simon, the Pharisee. And clearly, Simon is a dignitary. People know where he lives. She knew where he lived. And she knows if she goes into that house... It's like going into a den of lions. But she's in love. And she has got to see Jesus. She's got to tell him how her life is so different now. She's got to tell him uh, what he means to her. She's got to express, somehow she's got to express uh, how grateful she is for the change that he's brought in her life. Somehow she's got to see that look in, in his eye one more time. She's got to make contact with Jesus. Love makes you do some crazy things. Fear restricts your behavior, and shame restricts behavior, but love unleashes beautiful behavior. It makes you do crazy, beautiful things, like bashing a Pharisee's party as a prostitute. And this woman is in love. She's got to see Jesus. And so she decides, against her better common-sense judgment, to crash the party. And I don't think she had much of a game plan on this thing. She just was going to run out the door and, and run from her, her district, uh, her red-light district, into the respectable district. But on the way out the door, she sees this expensive perfume, and she grabs it. I don't think she... People don't walk around with a, a, a jar of uh, alabaster uh, perfume in, in their hand. Uh, but she grabs it. I don't think she knows what she's going to do with it. But it's the most precious thing she has. It, 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 it's a, her life savings, basically. But it's like a little kid who's just got to find something. Look what I got. I got this I can give to you. What, what can I give to you? Well, I've got this, this, this alabaster jar of perfume. And so she grabs it on the way out. She runs from her red light district into the respectable district where she's not supposed to go and she bashes into the house of Simon, the respectable Pharisee, which she's not supposed to do. And try to imagine the scene in your mind. Run a movie of this in your mind. What that looked like. As these religious dignitaries are sitting around discussing theological topics, I think they wanted to really, uh, you know, kind of pin Jesus uh, in, in this meeting. But in comes this prostitute and just stands. No words are said. There's silence. She stands at the feet of Jesus. And she's weeping. And I imagine a room full of very awkward silence and some very disdaining stares. This woman falls at the feet of Jesus and she sees that his feet haven't been cleaned yet, which is customary. And here's one thing she can do. She doesn't know what, she doesn't have a game plan here, but his feet are dirty. And I I can wash feet. So she's going to wash his feet. She's crying on his feet. And now she begins to wipe up the the dirt 
with her hair. And you got to know that if you've ever walked outside in sandals on a dirt road for any length of time, your feet get profoundly dirty. And that's what feet were like in those days. That's why they had usually feet washing basins when you came in. And this woman now is wiping up uh, the, 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 the wet mud on his feet with her hair. And she's crying. And then once, once that gets done, once his feet are clean enough, she pours this expensive ointment on his, on his feet. And she's pouring this out. It's like th- th- this ointment was, was gotten by ill means and was used for Ill, Ill purposes. It furthered her career as a prostitute. But now it's an act of worship as she pours it on his feet. And as she's pouring out this, this ointment, she's pouring out her life. She's pouring out a, a, a life of broken uh, promises, a life of disappointments, a life of failed dreams, a life of pain, a life of being objectified by men. She's just, but it's all that she's got. And she's pouring it at the feet of Jesus. The Pharisees, of course, are looking at her, and, and, and what they're seeing as they look at this woman is a harlot. What they're seeing as they look at this woman is, is the problem with society. Uh, is people like this that ruin society. What they see as they look at this woman is perhaps a scandal of, on the reputation. And they're worried about what will people think uh, who saw her come into this uh, uh, house. Uh, maybe they're looking at her as an opportunity to take a stand, to make a statement. Uh, an occasion to really crack down on this social ill that we have here and thereby restore our, our reputation. And maybe they're waiting, since it looks like this woman knows Jesus, they're waiting for Jesus to do it, but this, the, the, the thing isn't unfolding the way they may be anticipated. This woman, I think, in her newfound innocence, didn't realize that as she's caressing his feet and kissing his feet and, and pouring on this, this ointment on his feet, that could be interpreted sensually. It, it, this could get Jesus in trouble. But the woman doesn't care about that, and the woman doesn't doesn't care about the critics, and Jesus doesn't either. When Jesus looks at this woman, he doesn't see a classification of a person, a prostitute. What he sees is a radiant, beautiful daughter of God who got off track. When he looks at this woman, he doesn't see a social problem. He says a woman who loves him and a woman who receives his forgiveness. When she looks at this woman, he doesn't see a scandal on his reputation. He clearly was not too concerned about his reputation. He just sees the beauty of this woman and ascribes worth to the beauty of this woman. And it's at that point that he says, this woman, though her sins were many, they've been forgiven. And that's why she loves so much, because she's been forgiven so much. But to the one who is forgiven little, that person loves little. Now, is the point of the story that those who are, of us who are the greater sinners are in some ways more lucky because we, we've been forgiven more? Uh, would it be right to go out and sin our brains out just so God can forgive us more so that we can feel more in love? I don't think that's the point Jesus is making. The point Jesus is making is that we all need the kind of monumental, massive, infinite forgiveness that this prostitute was forgiven. We're to identify with the prostitute. Three things I want us to understand about this prostitute because in understanding that, we'll understand ourselves. Three, three ways we're supposed to identify with this prostitute. Number one, we are to know that we, like this prostitute, had an infinite debt that needed to be forgiven. We need much forgiven. The problem with Simon and the Pharisees was not that they thought they were perfect. 
We know that the Pharisees would confess their sins and repent of their sins. Uh, They did that. It's just that compared to to Mary, they felt pretty good about themselves. Yes, they needed forgiveness, but not as much as this woman. They saw themselves as basically okay people. We're We're not perfect, but we're basically okay. And see, if you think you're basically okay and you're measuring yourself against others, well, then that that, that affords you the luxury of being able to, to, to define yourself over and against them. It affords you the luxury of standing over them. It affords you the luxury of gossiping about them in your mind, if not with your words. It affords you the luxury of, of putting yourself in the position of moral superiority, moral guardian over them. It affords you the luxury of feeling secure about yourself because you're not like this prostitute, defining yourself over and against this prostitute. And why wouldn't they? Think about it. Why wouldn't they? Because after all, they were the good guys in first century Jewish culture. They believed all the right things in first century Jewish culture. They did most of the right things in first century Jewish culture. They were the ones who prayed. They were the ones who tithed. They were the tithed. They were the ones who went to the synagogue. They were the ones who did the good deeds. They didn't send their brains out like this prostitute. So of course, while they're not perfect and they need forgiveness like everybody else, they don't need as much forgiveness. And so they feel secure about that. That's almost a common sense observation. It's like, duh, well, of course. Yeah, they need to be forgiven, but not as much forgiveness. But the point of the story is to blow apart that common sense assumption. Jesus has this way, this marvelous way of turning the tables on our common sense. Jesus once shocked his audience when he said this. He turns the tables. Uh, He's showing us that those who feel secure because they're basically good people should be feeling very insecure if they knew what was true. And the ones who you'd think would be insecure should feel very secure. He says this to his his audience in in, in Matthew uh, 21. He says to the Pharisees, Truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes, listen to this, are going into the kingdom of God ahead of you. That didn't win him any points with his audience. I don't think we can really imagine just how shocking that was to his audience. I I bet they just were stunned inside. What what are you talking about? What are you talking about? You get a clue as to what he's talking about in other areas of the the gospel. In Mark chapter 2, for example, it says this, When the scribes and the Pharisees saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors... They said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard this, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And I've come as a physician to call not the righteous, but sinners, not the healthy, but the sick. If you read between the lines, what you're hearing him say is, and by the way, you're all equally sick. You're all in need of the great physician. What, what Jesus does over and over again, and it comes out in this story, and it comes out in a number of other passages, is this. He's saying the scariest place to be is secure. The scariest place to be is to be secure in your religiosity. The fair, scariest place to be is to think that you're basically okay. The scariest place to be is to think that you're not as sick as this prostitute. The scariest place to be is to think that you are more righteous than this prostitute. The scariest place to be is to think that you can stand on your own. If you're looking at things from a kingdom of God perspective, if you're looking at things from a God's eye view, if you're measuring yourself not against other people's uh, uh, righteousness or unrighteousness, but against God's righteousness, 
then you'll understand that the only secure place to be in the kingdom of God is to be like this prostitute and know that if God's mercy isn't true, you don't have a hope. You don't have uh, the slightest possibility of being reconciled to God. The secure place to be is where the thief on the cross was. Uh, The secure place to be is where the tax collector is uh, when he's uh, realizing that the kingdom of God has come to him. The secure place to be is to know that without Christ, we have no hope. Without Christ, we have no life. Without Christ, we can have no joy. Without Christ, we have no destiny with God. The secure place to be is to know to know that you need the physician as much as anyone could possibly need the physician. Because now you'll receive what the physician has to offer. It doesn't matter the variety, the particular kind of, of, of sickness that you have or how you compare to other people in your own way of measuring things. What matters is that you understand that next to God's holiness, you're profoundly sick and in need of a uh, the, the great physician. And when you understand that, then you stop the comparison game. The, the good thing about being a prostitute and a thief on the cross who's 20 minutes away from dying is that there's no temptation to try to measure yourself up against other people. I don't think that's a temptation they'd really have, comparing themselves favorably with somebody else. And there's one plus about that, and that is that you're in a position where all human beings should be, where you realize that you have a desperate need for the grace and the mercy of God. And until we genuinely understand that the relative differences that we think we can observe, we never do it accurately, we always do it self-servingly, but the relative differences we think we can observe between the righteousness of people, until we understand that that is absolutely invalidated. And the only measuring rod that counts is the measuring rod of the cross, which tells us that our sins were so severe that Jesus had to die for that. Until we understand that, we'll never fully appreciate the grace of God. Until you realize you're a sinner, you can't appreciate the grace. And the more you realize you're a sinner, the more you understand the beauty of God's grace and the more grateful you are that it comes to you. And so it's actually part of the good news to hear that you are an infinite sinner as much as this prostitute in the exact same situation. You are the prostitute. The second thing is this. She knew that she was a sinner in need of forgiveness but she also believed that she received that forgiveness. And she put all her hope, as we sang about this morning, all her hope in that one thing, that I am forgiven, I am loved. Despite my sin, I'm valued by by the, the person of Jesus Christ. The only thing we've got to stand on if we're thinking rightly, and the only thing we can possibly feel secure about if we're thinking rightly, is that we belong to Jesus Christ. I have got nothing to boast about other than, like Paul says, if I'm going to boast, I've got to boast in the Lord. The only, the only thing I can feel security in, in terms of my relationship with God, is that Jesus Christ died for me, that I am forgiven. The only thing I can find security in is the truth that despite my sin, I am loved more profoundly this moment than I could ever possibly be imagined. The only security I have is to know that, that I'm washed by the blood of Jesus Christ. I'm cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. I'm embraced by the Holy Spirit. I, I may be very weak, but I know that I'm strong enough to at least say, uh, Lord, I accept your strength. Hold me in your arms. And I, and I may be very poor, but I can accept the riches of Christ Jesus. And I may be lost in sin on my own, but I can accept the righteousness that comes from Jesus Christ. And I may be a profoundly broken person, but I can, I can trust that he's going to be putting me back together again. 
And our confidence has got to be, our life has got to be, our identity has got to be in, in, in the grace of, 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 that comes to us through the person of Jesus Christ. And that faith has got to be more intense than all the judges in the world and all the judges in our mind. This woman, as she crashed this party, she was walking into a, a room full of judges, and they're looking at her, and they're, they're thinking, you are borrowed, you are used, you are trash, you are despicable. You, how dare you think you have the right to come into our house? How dare you think you have the right to touch one of our, uh, the people sitting at our table? Who, who do you think you are? You're on the outside, you're not on the inside. But this woman didn't engage them, and neither did Jesus engage them. She just was looking at Jesus Christ. She knew where her hope was. And she fell down at his feet and began to worship, ascribe worth to him because of the forgiveness she received from, the, from him. And so it is with each one of us. We're surrounded by a world full of judging Simon-like voices, a world full of Simon-like eyes that will tell us uh, voices of the past and voices of the present, and most of them are stuck right there in our own head, that maybe will tell you that because of the abortion, you're forever tainted, and because of, of the child you had out of wedlock, you're forever tainted, or because of the person you hurt in the past, you're forever tainted. The most you can hope for is a second or third class uh, sort of stance with God. You can never be like the rest of the people in this auditorium. You know that you're a hypocrite. You know that you're unrighteous. All of those voices don't even engage them. There's one truth you've got to know and let that truth define you to the core of your being just like this prostitute did. And that is that while, yes, you are a sinner, in Christ you receive outrageous, unsurpassable, incomprehensible mercy and grace and love. Receive it. Identify with it. Amen. The one reply against all the voices of the accuser is, Jesus loves me, this I know for the Bible tells me so. And understanding that you are the prostitute and understanding that your life has been saved by outrageous mercy and love, at least the third way we're supposed to identify with her, and that is simply we pour out our most expensive perfume. When your heart is touched by this kind of love, gratitude invariably wells up and it's got to be expressed. Imagine this lady... Would you sing the song that we sang today? Uh, you are my, my breath. You are my hope. You're, you're the reason I live. You are my everything. Uh, you alone. There's no one like you. And she expresses that by bringing the only thing, the most expensive thing, the best thing that she had. The beautiful thing about God is that when we bring him even our carnal stuff, like this ointment was, I imagine some of those Pharisees were thinking, well, I wonder how she bought that oil, and I wonder why she bought that ointment. Oh, it's just, you know, that's tainted ointment. How dare Jesus receive tainted ointment? But you see, ointment, when it's, when it's used to ascribe worth to Jesus, becomes holy ointment. This is now holy oil. So also, we are to bring all that we have to Jesus and pour ourselves out to him. Whatever we have, our alabaster jar of perfume, we are to anoint the feet of Jesus with that. When we understand what we've been forgiven, when we understand that we've been forgiven, we respond by worship, and we pour out our best for him. The whole gospel is contained in this. You desperately need forgiveness. If you'll receive it, you have, re you have that forgiveness and live a life of outrageous gratitude because of it. That's the whole gospel, right there and then. 
So I want to ask these fundamental questions. Number one, do you identify more with Simon or with the prostitute in this story? Are, are you one of those who really, maybe theoretically you'll be, you believe, but you don't really believe that you are in fact in the same position as this prostitute, in the same position as any other person we might find on this planet, that you are in fact, you have nothing over them, uh, that, that there's, there's no validity in any sort of comparison you might make with them. Do you believe that, in fact, you were that lost? If you don't believe that, that's just further evidence of how far lost you are, <laughs> how far gone your mind is. We need to receive on the authority. Your sin was so bad that Jesus had to die for you. And it's not like some of us needed his death more than others. You know, it's like the cross is, some of us do it partly by works and partly by grace. Others, the real bad sinners need all grace. No, we all need all grace. It's an equal playing field. Do you know that? Secondly, do you know that you've received that forgiveness? Have you let the Lord restore the innocence that you lost? Have you let the Lord wipe the slate clean? Do you still have Simon voices in your own mind that accuse you and, and uh, cause you to be unable to fully experience the joy of that total cleansing and forgiveness that he comes to bring us? Or maybe you can believe that God forgives you, but you have trouble forgiving yourself. Like your opinion has more validity than God's. And I want to pray that that, that, that voice gets collapsed, that that that, that uh, accuser in your mind, that Simon in your brain gets collapsed. The third thing is, are you living, really living your life, expressing the gratitude of a person who has had an infinite destiny changed? A person who's been forgiven an infinite debt. Are you living in gratitude for that? Are you pouring out your alabaster jar of ointment? Or do you tend to clutch it and give Jesus some of the leftovers? I want you to think about all three of those, these questions as we listen to a song uh, by Jennifer Knapp a song I just heard this week. Uh, as I was thinking about this sermon, I was working, uh, working at a friend's house, and this song came on, and uh, it was like whammo, bammo. So consider those three questions as we listen to this song called Hold Me Now. Oh, oh, Lord of Christ, would you wait? 
between you and God, I want to ask these three questions one more time. This is the essence of the gospel. And I just want you to signify to God the particular need in your life and what you would like him to work on. First of all, are there people here who maybe you have trouble identifying strongly, totally, with the prostitute? And you know that there's a Simon component to your mind. And you do think that you're basically okay or at least not as bad as others. So you have trouble fully appreciating in an experiential way the depth that you've been forgiven. If that's a struggle in your life with everyone's eyes closed, would you just raise your hand before God and say, I, I need prayer in that, that area. Lord, help me here. Good. Wonderful. Just be honest here. There's no... We're all in this together. Wonderful. Okay. Put those down. Are you here? And you can answer more than one question affirmatively. But maybe you really I do identify with the prostitute very easily and, and you don't have a temptation to compare yourself to anybody. But you got a Simon in your brain that's pounding you down and you have trouble really believing that in fact your innocence is restored, that you're holy and radiant and beautiful in his sight, that you're forgiven. There's voices in your head that say you're not worth half the blood that was spilled. You're borrowed and used and it'll always be that way. Or maybe you're here this morning and you've never asked him to forgive you. You need to do that. And so if, if that question applies to you, would you raise your hand? Amen. Just tell God that's the area I need. Amen. And finally, the third question is this. Are you here this morning and maybe you believe that in fact you're a sinner who's been forgiven an infinite debt? But you tend to hang on to the alabaster jar kind of tight. And you're not really poured out for him. You can ask him to, by his grace, give you that kind of love and passion that Mary had for Jesus where you freely poured out. It means nothing to you apart from Christ. And if, you're, if that's your prayer this morning, would you raise your hand? Amen. All right. Could we stand? And I'm just going to pray for each of those three needs. 
And if you're here this morning and you've, you're, you're new to this, you've never surrendered your life to Christ, as I pray for you, do that in your heart. Just say, Lord, I, I, uh, I know that I need you and ask him to forgive you. He died for you. And then I want to invite those who do that for the first time to, when I'm done praying, to come forward. And to my right, your left, up here, there's a lady who would love to explain to you what that means and, and give you some information that will help you get started in the Christian life. But let's all pray together here. I just want to pray out loud for, for everybody here. Father, I just pray, God, for those who tend to be plagued by a religious spirit, the Simon spirit, the Pharisee spirit, maybe not in a real overt way, God, but they have real trouble believing that, in fact, they are on the same level as the prostitute. Father, humble them. Humble them. Break them by your love, by your grace. Break all of us to the extent that we've got Simons in our head and Simons in our heart, Lord God. Humble us to see that we were desperately lost in the same situation as this prostitute and that we need your forgiveness, your mercy, as much as anybody in history has ever needed your mercy. Lord, help us to receive that. Make that real to us so that we might appreciate the fullness of the grace that we have received. And Father, we pray for those here, our brothers and sisters who who have trouble believing that, in fact, your word of forgiveness is true. For those who have never asked you to forgive them, I pray you'd help them do that right now, just to humble themselves before you and say, I need your forgiveness. Help them to believe in the reality of the cross. I pray, God, for those people who struggle in this area, that, that God, you would make your voice far, far more credible than their own voice. And help them, God, to forgive themselves and to recover the joy of their childhood innocence as the slate is wiped clean. There may be our consequences of things we've done that we can't repair, but with you, Lord God, we're a radiant holy bride. Help us to believe that. And finally, Lord, for the multitude of people who confess to you that they're hanging on to the alabaster jar, God, erupt, erupt, explode in their hearts a profound gratitude for what you've done for them a gratitude and explosion that will release the clutches of that jar, that they might, God, get themselves in the lowest possible position and pour that out on your feet. Lord, help us, all of us, to know, to experience, and to even rejoice in the fact that we were outrageous sinners saved by your outrageous love. And help us to live in outrageous gratitude because of it. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen, amen, amen. God is so good, isn't he? God is good, God is good. The gospel is beautiful. The gospel is a beauty. You can always know the good news because it's good. It's good news. Now, I'd like to ask the prayer team to come forward, and if you have any need whatsoever you'd like to have prayed for, I encourage you to come forward and spend some time with them. If you invited Christ into your life and asked for forgiveness uh, for the first time this morning, Come up here to the table to my right and your left, and this wonderful lady will be happy to explain that to you. Love you guys. God bless. Go out and do the kingdom.